Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. I'm really excited because I have Keith Leslie on the show today. Welcome, Keith, who is chair of the Samaritans in the UK. Nice to meet you, Keith. Thank you, Ruth. Delighted to be here. So for those that don't know you, would you mind introducing a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, who you are and who you serve? Absolutely. Uh, of course, like anyone else, I could talk about myself forever. But very briefly, I'm now father and now grandfather uh, amongst the proudest exploits. But I'm also chair of Samaritans in the UK and Ireland, which is the greatest privilege and the biggest job of my life having spent my working career in the private sector with Shell, McKinsey and Deloitte, and having worked mainly with government as clients over the last 20 years. This is now the third charity I've chaired. And such an important charity, given the crisis that we're in at the moment and, and obviously the struggles that people are having. So just really want to thank you and, and everyone that works within the Samaritans for all the work that that you do to help people who are struggling uh, with really difficult circumstances. So thank you. Absolutely. So and, that, and that is really down not to me, I hasten to add, as I'm chair of the board and bringing advice and support from 30 years of work. But the real work is done on the front line by our 20,000 volunteers. So it's a yeah. volunteer service handling about 10,000 contacts a day. Wow. Wow. So so this show is all about brain health. And what does optimal brain health mean for you personally? Well, I think it's important to say that, in my view, brain health, mental health and optimal brain health is about how one feels and how one is every day. It's not about an on off button. Am I ill or am I healthy? It's how am I doing today? in the sense that we all feel physically you know, more energetic or less energetic each day. I think mm -hmm. mentally we are also more on the ball or feeling subpar, to use uh, two sporting metaphors, um, mm -hmm. about how our brains are functioning and how we're performing mentally each day. Yeah, and I, I think that's really important, you know, the, the fact that you mentioned how you're feeling as well as how you're mentally functioning, because... When I, when I talk to people about brain health, we look at the four quadrants of their well-being, which is their emotional, their physical, their mental and their spiritual well-being, and making sure those four elements are really dialed in. So I think it's really important we do connect with our emotions because they massively drive our behaviours, don't they? Indeed, it's all very much interactive. So if you're feeling poorly physically, it is often quite hard to feel good mentally. If you're feeling a bit down or you don't have something spiritual, and by that I take a very broad definition, mm -hmm. something worthwhile that you're doing with your life, then it's quite hard to be mentally fully healthy as well. Yes, it is. It is. So I'm really curious for some people that don't know your story. I'd love first of all, to explore some of the statistics that, that we've observed over the last year, two years, in terms of um, what the Samaritans have had to deal with in, in the crisis itself. And then I'd really love to dive into your story. Could you t tell us a little bit about what the work that the Samaritans are doing, what changes they've noticed statistically and 
obviously on the front line with regards to the crisis that we've been in so far. Absolutely. And I will step through that. Firstly, I think I'd like to say that Samaritans provides a range of services. There's a whole uh, gamut of activities we undertake, albeit the best known one is the phone service, the 116-123 number, which you, know, you can call from anywhere and a mm -hmm. volunteer will pick up the phone 24-7. That's what we're best known for, but there's a range of other services. We provide support, again, individual to individual via web chat, email, letter, and of course, prior to the pandemic, face-to-face. -face. We haven't mm -hmm. restarted face-to-face -face services yet. But in addition to all that, we also critically, I think, are a voice to decision makers, whether that's in government, parliament, the devolved assemblies, uh, first ministers, the government in Dublin, in the Republic, uh, the NHS, local authorities, mayors, huge number of decision makers are influenced by Samaritan's research and debate and argument that we need to do more to reduce suicides. The, um, yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, what have you noticed um, over the last year, two years since we um, had the pandemic? What's been the big shift? Well, the there's several levels to answer that. The first one is that the number of calls to Samaritans is up by something mm -hmm. around 15 percent. And for us, that's been a huge challenge because at the start of the pandemic, you'll remember that people above a certain age or with certain health conditions were instructed to shield, to not mm -hmm. leave home. And that meant that at the same time as we saw calls going up, our workforce declined by about 20%. It was about 20% wow. of our volunteers had to shield. Now we are back up to the level we started in terms of uh, numbers of volunteers, but it's taken us 18 months to get there. And we are facing continuing increasing demand. Now that is the Samaritan's answer. If one looks at suicide and statistics and so forth, one has to be very careful because suicide is not a condition that a doctor will write down. Suicide is an interpretation of acts. Was this someone who took their own life? And that's a legal definition. And it goes through processes, coroners in England, procurators, fiscal in Scotland, a bit different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, slightly different definitions. And it's all about registrations. So we're cautious when we interpret any single year's numbers. But I can say that the numbers we have had for 2020 illustrate that there has been no upward blip in the numbers taking their own life. If anything, there's been slight continuation of downward trends. But we're mm -hmm. cautious about that because we may not have seen the full registrations. And the second major reason for being cautious is that from past experience, we know that suicide numbers do not change radically during a crisis, they change after a crisis, as people are coming to terms with it. And you can already see in the last few weeks in the UK, talk about you know, poorer families losing perhaps a thousand pounds over price increases, tax increases, etc. And it's that kind of economic impact and uncertainty going forward which actually probably drives suicide statistics more than the crisis, such as the mm -hmm. one we went through in the last 18 months. 
I think that's really important to observe is that the, you know, that for me, spiritual connection is living a life of passion and purpose and, and connecting to something that's more than just you, yourself. And obviously when people feel that that purpose that they were living is being eroded uh, or, or they're losing that sense of purpose, that's when it can be really difficult for people and uh, very hard for them to to manage their emotional mindset and also their their, men, their, their mental health as well. So, yes, absolutely. And, and I think there's been you know, mixed events on that through the pandemic. So on one hand, uh, to take a more conventional spiritual definition, churches have been shut. Yes. And people talk about the impact of that on losing a sense of community, and not gathering with people and not providing a structure for worship, regardless of whether it's churches or mosques, temple, whatever, synagogue, whatever. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've seen a significant uptake in community activity and volunteering. And you know, some of that may be linked to religious bodies. Most of it is not. It's linked to local communities, schools, streets. And that is... No, an opportunity for people to reconnect with a sense of purpose serving others. And it's it's a well-established maxim of good mental health that doing good does you good. Yes. So being involved in something bigger than you. And yeah. for me personally, that uh, that plays out across all these elements. So I had a very committed Christian faith pretty much my entire life. Mm -hmm. that has been difficult divorcing us from the church physically during the pandemic but we've been mm -hmm. very connected with our local group mm. and working in the charity field and in mental health has been a passion of mine for decades now so I am getting to play that out in my life and I'm hugely grateful for that yeah that's wonderful and I know for me per personally the work that that the Samaritans do is vitally important because for my family history is my my mother's um, father had death by suicide and um, when she was only six years old so it's really a really important part of of the work that I do to make sure that not just me personally that I don't get into the situation where I have those thoughts which I have done um, and being fortunate to be able to pull myself out but that I help other people um with the thoughts and the emotions and the and the 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 self-talk and the passion and the purpose that we just talked about those four quadrants of well-being that they're, they're all dialing them in and making sure that they're, they're living a life that is congruent with what what for them is the best uh, or optimal brain health for them so it's it's such an important uh, work that that the samaritans do to to help people in times of of crisis so and i'm really curious uh your story we've talked a little bit about this offline but i'd love to explore your story uh if you will that got you to become the chair of the samaritans in the uk uh, and ireland that you are today indeed and i mentioned that mental health has been a passion of mine for decades and yeah. it's really only in the last two decades out of the 60 odd years, that has really been something I could really make a contribution in. But it goes back to the, the first decades of my life. It uh -huh. was my mother who died two years ago. Uh 
Um, she was seriously mentally ill her entire life. So she was one of the very small proportion of people with a serious diagnosable mental illness. Mm-hmm. And her circumstance is quite different from the 95 plus percent of us for whom anxiety and depression may be the challenges rather than something more serious uh, mm-hmm. spectrum. So my mother was quite seriously unwell. And I only discovered later that essentially that had been the case her entire life. And if you go back to the 60s and 70s, far less before then, then mental ill health was not something you talked about. It was not something that my grandparents discussed with me or my sister. My mother was periodically psychotic and sectioned and in hospital. And as a teenager, no, we knew nothing about what that meant or what was Mm -hmm. happening or what the treatment was, or would she ever be better? Now, over time, as teenagers, we learned essentially to care for her and Mm -hmm. how to manage uh, what was happening to her and what was happening to us as a consequence. Mm -hmm. Now, this was particularly accentuated um, by the fact that our father had died when I was 12, and really there was then no adult in the household who was responsible for managing the situation with my mother. So that then Mm -hmm. came back as children to manage. Did that fall on you? Did you feel that responsibility fall on you as the the male child in the household? Yes, uh, to some extent it did, as long as I was there. But Mm -hmm. my sister played a much greater role later because I moved away and that was part of my response, was really to get away uh, post-university, having gone through adolescence and student years um, you know, with that relationship with my mother and in the absence mm-hmm. of my mother. But in subsequent when, days, my sister was there to hand, not me. Mm-hmm. And when did, you, when did your mother start? Did she have these struggles from birth or, or did they uh, manifest at a point well, in your childhood? Do you, know, do you remember? Well, I can recollect the, the first episodes I recollect would be maybe from about seven years old. Okay. But she had clearly suffered her entire life going back to her teenage years. That oh, slowly okay. emerged over subsequent decades and conversations with the family. When did they and was it trauma tri- triggered by trauma? Are you aware? Or? Um, well, it's undoubtedly the case that the death of... Um, Our father, her husband, the love of her life, had a devastating impact on her, Mm. as indeed it did on all of us. But Mm. she was the one who was most fragile, uh, Mm. is probably the best way to interpret it. So that was a traumatic event for the whole family, in effect compounded by her mental illness, which meant that for us as children, we at, at times we essentially lost both parents. Mm. How, how did you manage to cope with the the uh, environment that you were growing up with with your mother how did you deal with it as a child well I think like many things one just gets used to this is how it is and adopts a number of coping mechanisms and I remember going through the cycle of you no know, re- reasoning with her before mm-hmm. discovering that reasoning wasn't working and then 
being more directive, more taking responsibility for the situation and saying, no, that's not how it is. This is what we're going to do. But ultimately, the strategy um, was essentially to get away from it. Mm. And that's not something I'm necessarily proud of saying, but that is probably realistically the only option that, that we really had. Because mm. in, in the modern definition of mental health as something that we have better or worse every day was not applied then. Then it was pure, it was a medical problem. It was an issue of shame. It was an issue of treatment, and you didn't talk about it. So I think the consequences that we bore, and I certainly bore after that, was the inability to discuss it with anyone, and therefore mm. need to contain it within myself and manage problems myself. That was the lesson that came from it. I had to be self-reliant. Mm. I imagine that must have been really hard for, for yourself. I know for me personally, suffering uh, childhood trauma, I had to contain it. I couldn't talk about it. Uh, and it really played out in my adult life. How did, did, it, did you notice how, it, how that containment affected you? How did that? Well, I think it, um, it probably had opposing effects, as many times these things do. So there was, I think, a general philosophy of self-reliance, which mm -hmm. I applied in my life, that you know, if there's anything I wanted to get to, I had to get there largely myself. And an ethos that you would expect from a Scots Presbyterian background of hard work and dedication to, the, to whatever you were setting out to do. Um, at the same time, I think in terms of personal relationships, colleagues and so forth, I think I was probably more looking out for and more sensitive to other people, empathic mm -hmm. with them, and also looking to build a closer emotional link with them than was perhaps average, put it that mm -hmm. way, certainly in the workplace. And how did it, uh, I know you mentioned your dad passed away when you were 12, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And um, how did how did that how did you cope with your obviously your sister is she young younger than yourself yeah. three years younger yes yeah oh so, yeah so the no I can absolutely remember that day as anyone who's mm. been bereaved will will remember the day when it yeah. all happened the and I think again as a product of the times it was not something that was discussed. There was very little discussion or even naming of our our dad subsequently. And mm -hmm. one just discovered an aspect of it by accident. I think what's interesting even now is some of this I have written about or it's been written about in interviews in magazines and so forth uh, related to the Samaritan's job. And people I knew at school or at university have got in touch and said, you know, I was completely unaware of this. I would mm. have perhaps approached things differently if I'd known the struggles that you were having. And I think that just illustrates the fact that, you know, people didn't talk about difficult yeah. subjects. And I suppose also it, that, that it's that shame what was the sort of driving emotion? Is it just not to talk about it? Or was there a shame linked to the talking out loud about it? Or 
because I know well, people still struggle with, with this today with with family matters that that are very sensitive what was it for, for yourself well I think that was certainly the case with my grandparents that mm -hmm. no they had actually been coping with it for a long time um, at this stage no for a couple of decades and their practiced approach was that this was not something that you talked about um, and therefore the impact for me was not so much an issue of shame mm -hmm. but ignorance really I really didn't know what was going on and there was no one to ask about yeah. what was going on I had to puzzle it out for myself to the extent I could and find my own strategies for dealing with it. Mm. Now, one of the things I find very interesting now as chair of Samaritans, and I raise this in discussions when I talk with our volunteers, well, I didn't call Samaritans and or any similar helpline. Now, why didn't, didn't I do that? What do we learn? I didn't either. When I yeah. was in a dark place, I, that was the last people I wanted to talk to, to be honest, because I didn't want to admit that I was struggling. And there may have been an element of that, may have been an element of ignorance about what Samaritans actually mm -hmm. does, which is actually to pr provide that listening ear, just to hear what's on people's minds and, and listen appreciatively to it. But no, I didn't know enough to be able to say what was happening. Yeah, that's it's really that must have been incredibly difficult for you to try and navigate uncharted waters without having somebody to help you steer the boat through and you're having to do all of that yourself with with no one to talk to and to find out where how, how to get through it. Yeah, although it's it is important to say that it wasn't on my mind every second of my life. Mm -hmm. It definitely had a very definite effect. But by the time I was coming up to university age, I had kind of worked out coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And I was off to university so I could see a point at which, to some extent, it would all be over. Mm -hmm. And did you, a lot, I, a lot of people I talk to tend to use uh, study to, to escape. Did you feel that was your escape, is to, to, to bury your head in education? Um, in, in different pastimes of interest, education, learning, I, I do think periodically that the fact I had a natural inclination to be good academically mm -hmm. um, undoubtedly made it all easier in one level by saying I can see a route through this, a point where it's going to shift and I'm going to mm -hmm. be away. At the same time, it probably also meant I was more conscious of the gap between how things should have been and how they actually were. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, I think there was a lot of taking consolation in reading about different worlds, history and others, and thinking about, well, what was I going to do with my life once I was no longer in this, in this context? Mm -hmm. And when did you get, when did you discover for yourself, when did you become aware of the difference that you were experiencing uh, in your childhood? When did you become sort of cognitively aware that there was a big difference between how you had grown up and the environment that you'd grown up in versus 
uh, other people within within your age group? Oh, I think that that was pretty much apparent immediately. Mm-hmm. As coincident with my father's death, I also was. I had already left primary school and was about to start secondary school. So there was already a big, you know, a big change moment in many children's lives, which can go mm-hmm. well or badly for them. And coincidentally, I was in with put in with a group of people in my first year at high school whom I did not know at all. So mm-hmm. it was also socially very disruptive. And trying to connect with that group who didn't know me and knew nothing of what was going on at home, I think was one of the most difficult two or three year periods of my life. Oh, I can imagine. And how did you manage to navigate through that period? How did you how did you well, get through it for yourself at that age? I think it comes back to just learning to be self-contained. Mm-hmm. Now, that was essentially the strategy. You know, keep your head down, you can get through it. Just take it day by day and something will change. Mm -hmm. Did you find you had to bury your emotions? Did you find you had to bury the the feelings that you had or were you able to release them in a way that was uh, helpful for you emotionally? Um, Well, it is quite a long time ago now. So uh, Mm -hmm. some of this, you know, struggled to remember but there was no one or no mechanism for releasing that or finding a productive outlet other mm-hmm. than let's just take it day by day with what I'm reading, what's on TV and so forth. Um, because neither home nor school were particularly conducive. Mm-hmm. And when, when for, you, for yourself, did you, did you reach out for help as an adult later on in life to get support? For, for the trauma that you'd experienced as a child? Well, um, yes and no. So, yes, mm. as um, you know, I went through life and you know, formed deeper friendships, married um, and so forth, then over time I did acquire people I could talk about these issues. But it was all probably several decades later. So I think it was only by the time I was into my 40s mm-hmm. that those questions were again surfacing. Because in your 20s and 30s, career-wise, it is very much about getting on. Mm-hmm. And the same approaches that got me through that difficult time in adolescence were getting me through career-wise as well. Very focused, very self-contained, very, you know, as I said, focused on just getting stuff done. And I think it's more on reaching midlife that one becomes more reflective and has the relationships to start unwinding some of what actually got you there. And is that going to be what gets you through the second half of your life? And how did how did that make when you did that reflection? Because that's kind of, that's really interesting. Because that's often you know we have a band of of age where where men uh, are are vulnerable or more vulnerable emotionally to the conditions uh, that can t- can lead to uh, suicidal thoughts or 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 them um unfortunately having death by suicide what was the trigger what was the trigger for you to 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 re- to do that re- piece of reflection was there, was there a shift in in your career at the time that allowed you the reflection or was it a change in do, do you know or did did you just think I'm um, this is midlife what am I 
What do I need to do yes. next? Well, I think that uh, there are things happening both at home and at work. Uh -huh. So um, starting a period of difficulties in, in my marriage and questioning, you know, was this going to be something that would sustain or not? Mm -hmm. And also facing a series of turning points, because I only ever had three employers. And so my career history in terms of employment was very straightforward. But the moves from the first to the second and second to the third and from the third into portfolio career were all major turning points and the result mm. of you know, serious questioning about was I doing the right thing with my life? It wasn't just about can I move to a promoted job or, or better money? It was about is this fundamentally what I want to do? So I think those kind of choices and catalytic moments were happening in in my forties and fifties. Mm -hmm. That's and and at that time you just reached out to to people who you knew to talk about it. You didn't formally reach out to a therapist or a coach or. And uh, not until later. So mm -hmm. I think in the forties it was very much about people who were around me in my fifties. I did um, talk with a career and life coach extensively for a period. And then when I left uh, full-time employment um, unexpectedly in 2016, now that then caused a major crisis when I had some degree of treatment, a very short period of taking pills to deal with acute anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, but then a more extended period of therapy, talking therapy, just talking through that experience and what I need to learn from it and change. Mm -hmm. And that was you know, both taking the tablets and the talking therapies were extremely helpful and positive. The tablets you, you... gave me some, some time and space to manage the immediate stress mm -hmm. to be able to think about it. Would you be able to talk about the build-up? Because for me, when I went through a difficult period in the corporate world, it was a very slow build-up that I wasn't observing in myself, That that, that a, a slow build-up of chronic stress, which led to me having a, a, an anxiety attack. What, what was the build-up for you? Would you mind um, sharing some of that? Um, well, my, well, there may be some elements in common with your experience, Ruth, but... Um, so I had done a series of very stressful, you know, highly paid, high-performance jobs, a mm -hmm. particular partner in two major consulting firms where you know, results were expected, a great deal of responsibility fell on the partners. So yes, these were very stressful jobs, and my colleagues found them stressful too. And I had a particular view as to why I was there and what purpose I was fulfilling that these were important influential jobs where I could do good. Now, in the final role, um, a note that I had written, particularly about the, the issue of the day, which was Brexit and government mm -hmm. preparedness for it, unexpectedly reached the media. Mm -hmm. And the without going into the details of how that's handled, because that's not particularly relevant here, that was something which caused immediate uh, dramatic stress because mm -hmm. my name and picture appeared on the front page of the newspapers 
And you can remember how tense and excited everyone was over Brexit. You were either the enemy or uh, a friend. You were never anything in between. Yeah. And essentially, I never went back to work again in terms of employed work. Now, the, the firm clearly and explicitly said that they thought they were helping in doing that by saying, don't come back, no, speak to the doctors, do whatever you need to do, but you do not need to come back. In fact, we don't want you to come back. Now, the reality was, although that was all well-intentioned, the reality was that was essentially, in a sense, going back to what I discussed with the experience decades before, that this was an othering experience. So I was mm. a problem, I was unwell, I should go away and not be talked about. And mm. I would not be in contact with the people who I was used to having around me who would have been supportive and would have been of benefit to just be there. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, because I didn't say this at the time, so it's a mm. hindsight issue, I should have said, that's all fine, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to still come into the office now and again and chat with people, because I can mm. still do that, I can still be helpful. That would have been much better for me and probably better for the firm. But to me, it's an experience I talk about as one where we still, as a reflex when talking about mental health, say, this is something that happens to other people. So let's Absolutely. and have them deal with it and have the medics deal with it, let them take a pill or whatever it might be. When the reality is, this is something that affects all of us having better or worse days from day to day. Mm. And the answer is to be spending more time talking to one another as human beings and using those relationships. And that fundamentally, strangely enough, brings me full circle to Samaritans because that's what mm. we do. It's about listening and talking. Mm. I think that's so important, that message is that, you know, it's so easy for, uh, I certainly felt like I was put in a bucket that you have got a problem uh, uh, and everyone else in the in the business does not have a problem. And I felt quite a lot of shame for myself personally for being put in that bucket, which was for me triggered by some of the um, activities that, uh, that were going on within the firm I was working for. But but then not being able to get out of the bucket because I was then a label um, with having a problem rather than being seen as it's a I'm having a struggle with my brain health and, and I want to do something to fix it and get back to a steady state that is good for me and keep the right uh, environmental surroundings that support my brain health because I'll how we operate is intrinsically connected to our surroundings it's uh, particularly when we're young but all the way throughout our life we are influenced hugely by the surroundings that we're in uh, and to make sure that those surroundings are the right surroundings for you to to nurture and also to re to to recover absolutely i mean there's so a couple of thoughts on that Ruth. the first would be this is the public mental health model no, your biology or your chemistry may be a small contributor. It's but the big contributors to good mental health or less good mental health are experience and environment. Are you in an mm. environment that's supportive 
have you gone through stressful experiences or going through them or, con or anticipating them, which is often the cause of anxiety? Second point I would make is in the pandemic, there's been a lot of talk about mental health. And that I think is a good thing, but I'm also deeply suspicious that a lot of this will melt away as we get back to quote, normal, unquote. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of people making quite glib comments about mental health, whether they're parliamentarians or their bosses and organizations or whoever, that actually there's no real commitment to change that lies behind using the mental health language. And I think that um, we are going to see some progress, but I suspect it's going to be at the continuing, slow, steady progress. I don't think we're going to see a step change, unfortunately, as a result of the pandemic. But maybe if we can just keep pressuring, talking about some of what Samaritans does again and mental health at work, lobbying, influencing decision makers, equipping organizational leaders to have the conversations about mental health that they need to do. Mm -hmm. And how did you, for, for your story, I know you said it, obviously you had to take uh, medication to deal with the acute anxiety that you experienced. How did you, for yourself, um, make the transition back to feeling uh, your normal self uh, that was that was the, be the best of you or the, or the you that you were happy with? How well, did you make I, that transition? I think it went through maybe three stages, which mm -hmm. in many ways I suspect are probably quite typical, although everyone's experience will be different. So there's a relatively short period of six months where only for the first maybe month or two of that was I actually taking tablets. And these were even, these are ones that doctors would say, no, those are absolutely at the mildest end of the spectrum to just take the edge off the anxiety that mm -hmm. was oppressing me day to day. Um, ongoing weekly uh, talking therapies were very helpful. So those six months were kind of just getting through it and stabilizing and stopping taking the tablets and stretching out the therapies and having more of the discussions just with my wife and friends and family around me. Mm -hmm. The second stage was one which I found deeply uncomfortable and frustrating, but again, with the benefit of hindsight, was, I think, quite important because I um, exited from full-time day job work, paid work, unexpectedly back in 2016, mm -hmm. and essentially for a couple of years had no job by which to define myself. And I was still chair of the Mental Health Foundation, which is a great organization. And that really gave me some purpose in what I was doing. But I'd gone from being 110% busy all the time at work to being probably 25% busy. And that kind of transition I found very difficult at the time. Mm -hmm. With the benefit of hindsight, I can see... Um, that this was essential. This is a period of quiet and recovery. And if you're religious, Zam, you would say that's God's hand in it. If you're more spiritual and less religious, you might just say it's karma and the universe bringing, coming back into balance. Otherwise, you might just say it's a happy accident. But that period of quiet, 
which also was the period in which I started writing my book. And mm. the book was a therapeutic activity, which frankly, I did not really think would see the light of day. So the fact <laughs> I've got it here. Hold it up. Is quite <laughs> astonishing. Um, but then the third phase kicked in. And as my friends and comrades in our faith would say, you know, God was waiting for the right opportunities for me. So Samaritans came along, the book came along, and all of these things came together to essentially launch this next phase where I'm pretty much working. I'm not full-time at Samaritans, but I can tell you it's a very demanding job mm -hmm. for a voluntary unpaid role. And it's incredibly important. So it's a privilege of my life to have this role. Um, so I'm now back again, very busy, not 110% busy, but certainly quite more busy than I perhaps would have expected to be at this stage in my life, but feeling I am doing what I am here to do which is great that's great and i and i know your uh support and mental health at work as well what, what would you say uh needs to change based on your experience and how it's evolving what's the what are the sort of three key things that you feel uh perhaps need more attention or need to change in the in the concept of uh people improving their mental health at work because we know you know it stress has been work-related stress has been cited by the world health or health organization as the epidemic of the 21st century and it and it certainly doesn't seem to be going away what would you say really needs to shift well i think the first thing that needs to shift and quite a lot of the book although it's about leadership it's about leadership mm. mental health inclusion and belonging all these things we've been talking about yeah. The first thing that I think needs to shift is what we understand by leadership. Because mental health in the workplace is not about being soft and fuzzy. It's actually about good quality, strategic and investment leadership. Because the your workforce is, as ever, your biggest asset. And there is good money to be made by investing in their mental health in improved productivity, decreased absenteeism, improved motivation, and team working. The second big message, I think, is there's plenty of things you can do to find the right answer for your organization. The most, the highest payoff thing to do, in my view, for almost everyone, will be to invest in training your frontline managers and supervisors whether those are team leaders in the city or it's shift supervisors in the NHS or in care homes or it's you know, the lead mechanic in a workshop. Those are the people who need to be able to talk about how people are feeling and how they're doing in the workplace. And these are not tough conversations. It's conversations like, no, you seem a bit down today. Is there anything going on? or you're going back to work after a spell away is there anything we need to do to make that easier and more than anything and this is the third point leading by example so mm. in the workplace leaders in the workplace need to talk about when they have struggled mm -hmm. so i found in my 40 years in the workplace 
I find my team saying to me, you know, Keith, you're one of the few who have said, I'm struggling with things this week. I'm going to have to postpone A and B because you know, I'm feeling under pressure. Can we talk about how we do A and B next week or some other time? Or let me know if that's going to put you under pressure and we'll find a different solution. And they said, no, people at the top of organizations like to pretend they're superhuman and everything's been done by their own efforts. And that was my strategy dealing with my mother's illness. Mm. But it takes time to realize that effective leadership is about unlocking your team. And one yes. of the ways you do that is to disclose when you're struggling and say, you know, and if you're facing the same thing, let's talk about it. See how I can help out. Do you know, I think that is really beautiful. I think that's so important because I often um, say that your vulnerability is often your greatest strength. Because when you are vulnerable and open about what you're struggling with, your team can see how they can support with their strengths to lift you up rather than push you down uh, and to really help as a as a cohesive team working together to, to elevate everyone up. Whereas if we don't take that time to communicate what we're truly struggling with, we'll never have that team support because they won't necessarily be aware of it to 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 lift you up and and vice versa you talking about it allows other people that that opportunity to open their uh, open up for themselves and have that create that really important safe space for people to talk about what they're struggling about so that uh, collectively as a team because that's how we work in the human race as a team we can work as a tribe to help everybody thrive um, rather than feeling that we're we're working in isolation trying to survive. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's again, it's part of what I've written about because the the book is called A Question of Leadership, but the subtitle is Leading Organizational Change in Times of Crisis. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot to say about the pandemic. But what it first knocks down is the old concept of a heroic leader who single-handedly mm. he because it's always a male white male he is leading his organization through because only he has the drive and the insight to do it and that is absolutely not the reality of how we work in organizations whether those organizations are corporate government care home shops charities whatever it's about recognizing that, yes, there are some things the senior leaders need to do, but there's other things only the frontline leadership can do and other things that the team behind the scenes need to do. And it's about leadership at all levels to actually realize coherent, positive change for any organization. And I think mm -hmm. this is generally something that's underinvested, not just by, you know, employers or government or whoever it's under invest, invested by academics and researchers to understand what is actually happening and sadly that's true of mental health and suicide as well if you were to pick out a topic on which there's been minimal real research suicide would be it in some ways i'm very proud that in my nine months in this role i've got to know the leading academics in the field but another level, it's frightening because I know them all and there's only a handful of them. And when I think about the leaders in the health world, whom I'm now speaking to, you know, we have a great relationship, we have a frank conversation, 
But the thing that is most alarming in a way is when they tell me how much they've learned in that one hour's conversation. And these are people at the top of the health world in the UK mm. and their knowledge of suicide and what drives it and how to deal with it is minimal. It's the mm. great one of the great unanswered issues of our day. Mm. And I think for me personally, having um, the, the ability to talk to somebody and, and be that listening voice where people can express how they're feeling and, and have that safe haven is so important. I know uh, myself, I was fortunate to, to save someone's life by having a telephone conversation with them, um, not knowing their background, but just being that person that was there to listen to them. Uh, and to understand their situation and to approach it with compassion was really important to them, not judge them, not berate them uh, in any way, but just being that 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 listening ear um, so that they could express how they were feeling was so important for them. And I think it's, it's knowing that, it, you know, obviously that was an extreme situation, but we all need to be able to communicate to each other what we're struggling with so that we can get that that help and support and for yourself you obviously um felt that was taken away from you when you when you left the workplace that that social network that was so important for you to to express yourself and to get that social support and connectivity from people and we know that social connection is um the number one predictor of happiness so it's really important that we have that right social infrastructure around us where we can have safe, open conversations. And I think that's definitely something that perhaps we need more of within the um, corporate space and with, within other organisations where there's no judgment put on that person when they do talk about their, their struggles. And yes, I couldn't agree more with it. I have to say, in terms of marketing it to corporate leaders, I'm quite unashamed in saying, this is about money. No, you will get a better financial result if you do this. So I think it's always helpful with anyone who's dealing in particularly the commercial world to make that argument. Mm. Because the moral argument, sadly, has not got everyone there on its own. But the moral yeah. argument is absolutely powerful and almost overwhelming when one looks at it. There are so many things in our society that have got immeasurably better in the last 20 years. Almost every form of illness, the trend is improving. On mm. poverty globally, the trend is improving. On long-standing issues like education of girls around the world, the trend is improving. Almost the only thing that is not improving, apart from some very specific diseases where which can be heartbreaking, but as a general issue that affects many millions of people, it's the deaths of despair from suicide, drugs, alcohol, abuse. Those are the issues which in many countries around the world are either static or worsening. Mm. And I think it's quite telling that these are the ones that we've, as a society, yet to resolve. And that's what we're now here to do absolutely and I think you know it's very we've created a environment really to a certain extent within the medical community where we use drugs as the treatment but the treatment yeah. 
of the drugs is typically to deal with the symptoms like you have for yourself. If we take your story as the classic, is it helped you with the symptoms of anxiety? But fortunately, you were able to deal with that in a very short term basis. But the long term work that in this was necessary to help you get back to the person that you knew you are and capable of being was through non-drug related interventions such as therapy and and coaching I know you said you had life coach support uh, and doing the deep personal work to to unlock and unchain that pain that you you'd harbored inside yourself from, from early childhood um through as a as a teenager from the, your history um, and to really help let go of that trauma uh, particularly emotional trauma can manifest itself in our body um, quite significantly later on in life if we don't deal with it if we don't tend to it in a constructive way which can lead to, to other um, diseases um, that that we don't connect back to the emotional trauma that we have from our from our childhood so I think it's so important that we do take that time to to connect with our emotions and connect with who we are, which is what we spoke about at the at the very begin, beginning uh, of this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And I think that is um, a powerfully reassuring message that there's a role we can all play here by reaching out and just asking, how are you doing today? It's not something that you need to be a therapist to do. And in no. fact, it, one of the phrases I keep repeating is, we can't treat our way out of this crisis. Now, the NHS would fall over if we all turned up expecting our mental health to be looked after as well as our physical health. And also, you know, five or six minutes with the GP, which is all the time they have and never could have, is all, all you'll get from that is a pill. And mm. prescriptions of antidepressants have doubled in the last decade in the UK with no sign of improvement in underlying mental health as a mm. result. So yeah. we can't treat our way out of this crisis. No. We have to talk our way out of it. Mm. Mm. I agree. And I think it is creating those vehicles, isn't it, for people to know that there are alternative ways to reach out, to get the support that they need. Um, because as you say, you know, your GP can only do so much, has only got so much time and, and the typical... A re solution in the first instance is is to treat the immediate symptom rather, rather than to to address the underlying root cause, which is which is the which is really what we need to do in the long term to to break free of of the struggles that people are having. In, in yeah. my view, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I keep saying to people, I and mean, that's what Samaritans is about. It's about listening and talking. Mm. And. The fact that it can be done on a mass basis with 20,000 volunteers mm. is an amazing tribute to the people who set it up 60 mm. odd years ago. Yeah. And so based on your your story, what would you what one piece of advice would you give somebody um, who is struggling with with childhood trauma that's that, that has gone unresolved and they're getting to the midlife and questioning uh what what direction they need to go and they're starting to struggle with with things that are going on in their life what what one piece of advice would you give somebody who's struggling in that time well i think it's consistent with what we've been saying throughout ruth which is to talk about it mm -hmm. and 
you know, it may take a little bit of a risk to try talking to a few people to find out, well, who's the one or two that you want to have the deeper conversation with. Because people who might shy away at the first mention are not going to be the right people to talk to. Others who show more compassion and more willingness to invest their time will be the people you want to spend more time with and talking about it. You don't need to talk to a therapist. They may be just talking to your spouse or partner or friend or mate at work. But mm -hmm. finding the right people to talk to is the most important thing and not keeping it to yourself. Yeah, and I think that's really key because our emotions are a signal for us to do something. And if we're struggling emotionally, then we need to take action that is constructive rather than destructive and reach out to somebody who needs help. So how can people reach out to yourself? How can they learn more about your book? which I'll just flush up here for everybody, A Question of Leadership by Keith yep. Leslie and also for the Samaritans as well. Well, the two are connected because the, the royalties from the book are going to Samaritans. So I can assure anyone who's wondering that you don't make money out of writing a book. You write a book for other reasons. And in my case, I certainly don't because it goes to Samaritans. If you buy the book on the Bloomsbury website, bloomsbury.com, uh, the discount code capitals leadership 2021 will also give you 25% off. Wonderful. So that's worth knowing. The because as a good Scott, I don't want you to spend more money than you need to. The <laughs> other thing I would say is there's lots of good support out there, lots of good written material, lots of good websites to go to and download stuff. So I would say it's not hard to find the first few things to read that will then stimulate your interest. And all of these charities, Samaritans, Mental Health Foundation, our friends at Mind and elsewhere, they all have great material online and they will answer queries and point you to more material. Mm -hmm. So rather than saying just Samaritans.org, but that's a great place to start, there's lots out there. And for those that uh, need to reach out and do, do obviously check the banner beneath this and, and obviously the show notes as well, we'll post that in the show notes too. Well, Keith, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show all about brain health, unchaining your pain. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Broadcast is brought to you by Winject Studios. We are an all-in-one educational platform for podcasters that revolutionizes how hosts leverage content to increase engagement with listeners, downloads, and income. We come together to focus on community, collaboration, and collective impact. For more information on how you can interact directly with our hosts, access exclusive live content with offers you can't get anywhere else from our official partners, join our purpose-driven community by visiting www.winject.com. If you're ready to build a career doing what you love, then we're ready to see you there.